You're listening to Amazing Health, where we empower you to make informed health decisions. This is The Fountain of Youth, Episode 5, with Diana Burnett. Tonight is going to be on protecting the brain. Thank you for coming. I know your interest in health is deep, and I want to welcome also those that are around the world that are going to be tuning in and watching. I think that health is important to every one of us. So again, tonight, I pray that you will learn something that will benefit you as far as taking care of this wonderful body that God has given us. And before we get started, we need to ask for the presence of our Lord who has made this body and that he has promised to give us the wisdom we need to know how to do anything he asked us to do, but especially take care of our health. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have given us such assurance of your love and that you desire that our whole body, mind, and spirit will be preserved blameless into the day of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we turn to you as our creator. Would you give us the wisdom from heaven that we need? Would you help us as we study your Bible to understand the principles that will keep us in health even as our soul is kept? Father, be with us tonight. Speak through me again. Make my words clear and understandable and give us teachable spirits. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you had a choice between an illness that afflicts your body and an illness that afflicts your brain, which would you take? You'd take the one that would afflict the body? I believe so. You know, one of the saddest things is to see someone to really lose connection with their brain. My father is suffering from some dementia. He's probably moderate to severe. He still recognizes his family members. You know, he's not to the point where he looks at me and doesn't know who I am. But he knows he's forgetful, and within a period of 20, 30 seconds, he might ask you the same thing two, three times. You know, and it's hard for the patient as well as for those who take care of them. And so of all the things that God has given us, I value health of my mind. And, you know, as we get older, it seems that that thing on top of our shoulder tends to work a little bit with a little more struggle. But God has a way not only of preserving us in health in our body, but in our mind. And there's a close connection between what goes on in our body and what goes on in the mind, because they're all connected, isn't it? The blood flow that goes through the body goes to the mind. When you're in pain, does that impact your thinking? It definitely does. So there's this communication, and one does not get afflicted without the other. So we want to understand, above all things, how to keep our mind in sharp working condition. I want to read a passage to you that I hope is familiar to all. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is one of my favorite scripture songs, but I'm not a singer, so I am not going to sing it for you. 
But it says in Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And in the sacrificial system, do you realize that a sacrifice that was brought for an offering had to be without blemish? And that is what we are being called to bring to God, an offering without blemish. Now, sometimes things happen to us, and we can't prevent some of the events that happen to us. We might be born with physical defects or maybe even mental but we definitely do not want to do things that are avoidable. So putting things in our bodies, around our bodies, the behavior of our lifestyle, these things impact our life. And God is calling us to present him, present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And it says that you might present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We do not own ourselves. God is saying, bring yourself as an offering to me. Why? Let's read the next verse. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Is it possible to think that we are serving God but not truly understand his will? If our minds are confused, we might think we're doing the right thing, but we might be off track. And so if our minds are renewed, it means that God wants us to have clearer perceptions. We want to be able to open the Bible and have the Holy Spirit speak to us and know that we are pleasing God. So that's our, our foundation for why we want to change the things that we do in our life. So we're going to be talking about how to protect the mind, the brain. And do you realize that in general, the adult brain weighs just about three pounds. That's not very much, is it? So that's like your hard drive up there that's controlling everything you do, not just your physical movements, not just how your lungs work and your heart works, but of all things that the brain does, it thinks. How does the brain think? You know, scientists can't figure that out. They know a lot about the brain. But this three-pound mass up here is what keeps you going every day. It's what helps you make decisions. It's what builds your character of all the choices that you make. And every day you're facing choices. This brain is incredible. I put up here a couple examples. There's a man named Dan Daniel Tammet. He can do calculations in his head, not on paper, to the 100th decimal place. And he can learn any language in one week. Pretty awesome, isn't it? And so over here to the right, what I have there is a decimal to the 100th place. And so he could take 
any number, any amount of figures with that number and multiply that together or divide it or whatever and calculate it in his head. The reason I use that as an example, because I don't even know if I could do that with a calculator. (laughs) And math was one of my best subjects. Our brain was meant to have phenomenal function. And the greatest and brightest of the minds that we know today are really pretty poor compared to the way that God made them to function. So, you know, we can really look forward to having a new brain in heaven. And what Daniel can do is going to be nothing. But I don't think that God expects you to have to accomplish that. I just wanted to bring you a point that the brain can do incredible things. Now I want to tell you about another guy, Stephen Wiltshire. He has autism, but he's highly functional in many things. He can be taken in an airplane, or anywhere, but if you take him up in an airplane, and he can look at a city square. And just by looking at it for a few minutes, you can can take him into the drawing room, and he can replicate what he saw in detail. Every stop sign, a rock, a pebble, the windows, the signs in the windows, the people, the clothes they were wearing, everything that he saw in those few minutes are imprinted on his brain, and he can replicate it on paper. We have an awesome brain. So... I want to tell you about how to take care of this brain. But there's a reason that we have a challenge in taking care of our brain. We're told in the Bible that we have an enemy. And here's what it's called. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion is doing what? He's walking about seeking whom he may devour. Now, if this was an animal in the jungle, he's going to be just seeking you because he wants to devour your body. But that's not what Satan wants. He wants your mind. And so we have an enemy that for all of the history of mankind, from the time Adam and Eve were created, he, this enemy has been looking how to take over the mind of every human being. Because he's in a war. He was cast out of heaven. And now he can no longer get at God directly, but he can get at him through his created people. And every time he defeats one of God's people, he triumphs. And so God wants us to protect our mind and to have the helmet of salvation, to have the strength of body, because this body is the vehicle that carries your mind. That's the whole purpose of your body. It's not to look beautiful. Although God wants us to look healthy. An unhealthy person isn't really, you know, attractive. I mean, but if someone might be born with features that aren't the most beautiful, but when they're healthy and vibrant and following the Lord and they have a purity and holiness of integrity, it's a different character, isn't it? They're attractive. So that's what God wants for us. How do we know that there's an enemy out there attacking your mind? Let me just give you a few statistics. More, this, this is particularly for America, good old United States. 
one of the wealthiest countries, strongest countries that's ever been. More than 30 million Americans are taking an antidepressant. One out of four women between the ages of 40 to 50 are on an antidepressant. Alzheimer's, which is a serious form of dementia, it has now climbed up into the top 10. It's number six of causes of death. That's serious. I mean, we look at cancer and we worry about that, but as we talked about not having your mind, losing connection, there's a lot of people that are suffering from this. About a third of foster children and nearly one half of kindergarten through 12th grade students are on at least one psychiatric drug. Suicide has now taken more lives than car accidents. Suicides increased 30% over the last 10 years in the ages between 35 and 64. Something is going on with our minds. It's been under attack. One of the founders of the modern specialty of psychiatry, his name is Carl Menninger. One of the first books he wrote is called The Human Mind. And here's what he says. Psychiatry is a science, and the mentally ill are only slightly different than healthy individuals. What do you think about that? <laughs> you know, we all think that we might be pretty stable. But you know, really, we're not. We just kind of teeter on that balance of being stable. <laughs> Why is the brain so important? These 80 billion brain cells that we have with a myriad of connections between each other, they are the communication system between the mind and the entire body. But more than that, they are the only medium through which heaven can speak to you. They're like our telephone line. I don't hear it so much anymore because I think cell phones have improved. But you know that saying, can you hear me? Can you hear me now? You know, can you imagine God up in heaven? Can you hear me? Well, let me get in a better position. Can you hear me now? You know, when our brains are disconnected, we can't hear God's voice. And sometimes, because of static in our brain, what we think we're hearing is not the same thing that God is saying. So it is critical that we keep our brain functioning. Well, I'm going to give you some good news. I'm only going to touch the surface of some points. We're not going to go through all the, the laws of health. We have talked about the laws of health, the essentials that we need as humans, and I'll just list them. We need oxygen, right? So we need oxygen. We need nutrition. We need water. We need exercise. We need sleep. We need to keep our body temperature at an even keel. And we need... What have I forgotten? Sun? Did I say sun? And we need love. 
And whenever our body is missing any of these elements in the way that God gave them to us, something's going to break. And any of these imbalances are going to affect our brain. You can't affect the body without affecting the brain, and you can't affect the brain without affecting the body. So we're going to go a few, a few of these things. And in the lectures that we've been having previously, we've talked a lot about diet. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about diet, but we'll go into a few other things. But just so that you know that nutrition has an impact on our mind, I'm going to give you just a few um, references, researches that have been done. And these are just the titles. Poor diet to be associated with cognitive deficits. Junk food during pregnancy and for the first five years of life predicted aggression, hyperactivity, worrying, sadness, and anxiety in that child's life. So what the mother eats during pregnancy is affecting the emotional stability of that baby. And then what she feeds them for five years is going to tell what kind of character, what kind of behavior they have. And if it is not health-promoting food, if it's the junk food, if it's the high-fat animal food diet, it's going to impact that child's behavior. There's a lower risk for depression with better quality diets and increased anxiety with higher intake of processed unhealthy food. So our mental stability has a foundation in the food we eat. Here's a few more. They found that saturated fats and refined sugar impact brain proteins that are involved with depression, that are involved with protection against oxidative stress. In our cancer lecture, we talked about oxidants, free radicals. So these free radicals are not only breaking the DNA and promoting cancer, but they're also going to be disrupting what's going on in the brain. There's oxidation that happens in the brain from high saturated fats and refined sugars. Also, new cell growth promotion. So the brain has to repair. You know, people used to think, or scientists used to think, that the brain didn't really change after you're mature. But what they're finding is it's constantly changing and molding and reshaping. And so these high-fat diets are impacting the ability of the brain to repair itself and to promote new growth. High-fat diet disrupts clearing of amyloid. Amyloid substance is what's implicated in dementia and particularly in Alzheimer's disease. So a lot of the, what's causing the increase in Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia is because in today's world, generally around the world, people are taking in more and more saturated fats. And even not just from animal fats, but from plant-based saturated fats. So too much of, of, of a fat, whether it's from animal or from plants, are going to affect the brain. They found that simple and high levels of carbohydrates create greater cognitive impairment. So simple and 
high levels of carbohydrates, those are your refined foods, your sugars, your white flours, your white rice, things that are separated from the package that God put them in. Well, what about meat? Does meat have an impact on the brain? Here is a study that was done, and they looked at inflammation that occurred in the brain. They said that while there are mental health benefits from fatty acids in fish, there are also negative effects because of arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid is a substance that causes inflammation anywhere in the body. And it is mostly found in animal food. There's trace amounts in the plant-based kingdom. But if you take in animal substances, you get this large amount of arachidonic acid. Pro-inflammatory metabolites of arachidonic acid from animal products cause neuroinflammation. So it can cause inflammation in the lungs and cause lung problems. It can cause inflammation in the blood vessels and you get cardiovascular disease. But it also impacts the brain. And your brain gets swelling just like the rest of your body does. Here is a chart of arachidonic food sources. So up at the top, we see that chicken and chicken mixed dishes along with eggs are at the top for arachidonic acid. We always think, oh, go for the white meat, because we thought that that helped keep the cholesterol lower. Well, they're finding now that that's not so true. Now, this problem with the arachidonic acid may not be the same as with the cholesterol, but what I'm pointing out is this good white meat is one of the highest for arachidonic acid, which means it's going to be the highest for inflammation in the brain. And then you've got beef. Sausage, franks, bacon, ribs. Those I would have actually thought would be at the top, wouldn't you? Some of these higher things, but chicken takes the top. And then down midway, you find fish. So fish really is much lower when you compare it to where the chicken and the eggs are at. But if you come all the way down, when you got, I didn't put it on here, but when you get down to things that are like your carbohydrates, your starches, your breads, your cereals, those have very low levels. They had maybe, um, it, was, it was like 2.3. So you get way down to the point where they're not causing the significant problem that you see from other animal products. Down on number nine, you see Mexican mixed dishes. Mexican food can have animal products in it. There's chicken and there's beef. But one of the prominent foods that's used in Mexican food that's causing the inflammation is cheese. Cheese is highly inflammatory to the body. And especially for people that have arthritis, if they will go off of dairy and particularly cheese, they will find a greater improvement in their arthritic condition. This is just a chart. It's very complicated, but what I want you to see is right up there at the top in the middle, arachidonic acid, and then it branches down, and what it's saying is that arachidonic acid breaks down 
and it's promoting the prostaglandins, the leukotrienes, and these two things, when they are inflamed from arachidonic acid, lead to production of cytokines. And it's the cytokines that are going to cause inflammation, bronchial constriction, airway obstruction, and cell infiltration. As far as the prostaglandins, that's where you get inflammation, pain, and swelling. So arachidonic plays a very powerful inflammatory um, response on the body. Now, it's better to not eat anything that has a face, even if it smiled at you. Why? The complete restriction of flesh food significantly reduced mood variability in omnivores. What that's saying is the people, the group that were eating flesh foods, that, that's what we call omnivores, they had, as they give them a score for moods, for whether they're depressed, anxious, angry, irritable, it was all their scores were down as far as maintaining an overall happy mood. And the conclusion of it, as they compared that to those on a vegetarian diet, they said perhaps eating less meat can help protect mood in omnivores, particularly important in those susceptible to mood disorders like schizophrenia, depression, bipolar. They will have an improved stability in their mental function by staying away from meat. Well, let's jump off of, off of food and let's touch on water. Let's look at how the water impacts your brain. This study showed that dehydration causes shrinkage of the brain tissue, and it's associated with a de an increase in ventricular volume. So the brain tissue itself is shrinking, but the fluid part of the brain is increasing. So that puts pressure from the inside instead of a nice, healthy tissue. Prolonged states of reduced water intakes may adversely impact executive functions, such as planning and visuospatial type um, um, planning or thinking. It directly affects how we think, how we make judgments. And we are living in a time when the enemy is out after us stronger than ever. And it is important to be able to understand what is right and what is wrong, because we are standing on the verge of eternity. So we want to drink our water. We'll talk about water and the good kind of water in just a minute. Here's another one. Dehydration is linked to greater stroke damage. And this was put out. There was a, um, two researchers, one from the University of Arizona College of Medicine. That's my school. And then one from John Hopkins. They have found that people who aren't well hydrated when they have a stroke are four times more likely to have adverse effects from their stroke than those who are well hydrated. So if you are in a condition where you're susceptible to having a stroke, being dehydrated is going to cause more damage than if you're well hydrated. 
Now, this study doesn't show it, but other studies show that keeping well hydrated will actually prevent strokes. So water is what keeps your blood nice and fluid. Your blood gets more sticky as you are low on water. Loma Linda study, this was, this was one done in about 2002. Drinking high levels of water can significantly reduce the coronary, uh, the uh, incidence of coronary heart disease. Now we're not talking about that tonight, we're talking about the brain. But do you think that keeping the blood and the heart in good circulation is going to impact the brain? Whatever impacts the heart is going to impact the brain. So drinking water is going to be significant in keeping the brain healthy. Drinking high amounts of plain water is as important as exercise, diet, and even smoking in preventing coronary heart disease. The water that you want to drink needs to be the purest and softest water you can get. In 2007, I believe it was, a lab in Oregon finished researching all of the water systems of the world. They looked at fish in the streams in Alaska. They looked at the water in the fish in the Arctic, the Antarctica, everywhere they could go in the world. They tested the fish and 100% of them were contaminated with mercury. So our water supply is contaminated. You don't want fluoride, you don't want chlorine, and we won't go into that tonight, but these are chemicals that are impacting our health, and they, even, they break down our heart, they break down our brain. So we won't go into it a lot, but I personally am an advocate for distilled water. It's the purest water and you also want soft water. Soft water means no minerals. Everyone thinks that distilled water is dead water. It doesn't have anything in it. Well, water's not meant to have anything in it. Your minerals come from your food. The minerals that are carried in water are inorganic. That means they do not break down in our body. Now, I just learned something, oh, it's been several years since I've learned this, but I always thought that the plants, as they pull the minerals out of the soil, that they convert it from inorganic to organic, and then we eat the plant, and we can utilize it, like calcium. So the plant pulls the inorganic calcium, it's in the form of calcium carbonate. If you take a supplement, make sure you never take calcium Cal carbonate. That's rock. It's limestone. You can't break it down. And it's going to be deposited throughout your body, in your eyes, in your heart, in your gallbladder, in your kidneys, in your brain, in your eyes. It'll deposit somewhere. It deposits in your hair. So you want it. What happens then, it's not the plants taking them out. It's the bacteria and the fungi in the soil that breaks down the minerals and makes them usable for the plant. So you want to have your soil rich with good bacteria and good fungus as well. And that's a whole lecture on gardening, and I'm not a top gardener. So how much water do you need? Before we get off the subject of water, 
You want enough to keep your urine pale yellow. Very few people can say they drink too much water, but there are a few that drink too much water. A woman killed herself one time from drinking two gallons of water at a time. So you don't want to drink too much. But the average adult, even someone about my size, can handle three quarts of water a day. So you want to get a good amount. You want at least eight to 10 glasses, 12 ounce glasses of water a day. Now the way you drink your water, you want to take water in as soon as you get up, before your meal. Ideally, if you go to bed with an empty stomach, there should be no food in your stomach when you go to bed. If there's food in your stomach when you go to bed, when you wake up, that food has sat in your stomach all night and rotted. And you're going to have a sour stomach, and you're not going to feel like eating breakfast. And when you drink water, it's not going to flush out. So what I'm telling you is, to make this plan work, you got to go to bed with an empty stomach. So try not to eat two to three hours at least before going to bed. And you want a light meal so it's not heavy and hard to digest. So first thing in the morning, drink at least two cups of hot, warm hot water. You can do anywhere up to three to four cups. And you want to drink it in a short period of time, like 30 seconds, maybe a minute. It's basically guzzling it. You just chug it down. Because if you just work on sipping it, this plan doesn't work. You want that bolus of water to hit your stomach. It opens up the pyloric valve at the end of the stomach and flushes into the intestinal tract. It's like giving yourself an internal shower. It stimulates peristalsis, and it flushes the stool out. It's like a rotor-rooter. And then as it gets to the colon, the colon absorbs the large amount of water, so you are giving every cell in your body a morning drink. You know, Mostly overnight, you're not drinking a lot of water. So you've gone that period of time that you're dehydrating. And so you want to give your body this boost. And it's the water is to cleanse every part of your cell. And you don't want anything in it. You don't take a shower in Coke, do you? Or even orange juice or apple juice. You want just water. That's what cleanses us. So ideally then, it will give you a nice flush. Now, the complaint that I hear is, but then I have to go to the bathroom so much. Well, that's why we have restrooms, you know? It's good to go. It keeps your kidneys functioning. So then you don't want to drink again for if your meal's a half hour, coming up a half hour. So drink up to a half hour before your meal. Have your meal with no water at your meal time. When you drink water with your meal, you dilute the digestive juices, and the stomach cannot work on the food in, that's in it until that water's absorbed out. So no water with your meal, and then wait at least an hour up to two hours after a meal, and then start drinking water again. But this time, don't drink large amounts. This is where you just want to work on like a half a cup to a cup at a time. 
and continuously drink throughout the, the morning until your next meal. And then if your meal is going to be, let's say, at 1 o'clock, a half hour before, at 12.30, you want to take in another two to three cups of, this is, this is easier in the, in the wintertime when it's cold. The, the warm water helps to relax the muscle and kind of invigorate everything going on. And if you do that a half hour before your meal, what that will help do is move the, the bowel's um, stool out. So you want to keep the stool cleansed. This will prevent constipation. And so then you wait another hour or two hours after your meal and then start drinking water again. And you can cut down a little bit before you go to bed so that you're not up throughout the night drinking or happening to go to the bathroom. All right, there's much more. I could give you a whole hour on water. Water's so important. But we're going to move on back to our disease here, Toro Capsicum annuum. This is a very common condition. In fact, it's a problem with the majority of the world today, particularly the Western world. It leads to the top causes of mortality. Do you want to know what it is? It's couch potato. Toro capsicum annuum is Latin for couch potato. If you're a couch potato, you are going to suffer from the top 10 diseases that take life. So let's look at what exercise does to the brain. This was a presentation, and I just took the opening slide. And it says, physical inactivity is the biggest public health problem of the 21st century. Inactivity. We're just going to look at a few other studies. This is from a Dr. Levine. A new study says if people sat three hours less each day, it would add two years to their life. In fact, I didn't put this study in, but a new study has just come out in the last few months that shows that sitting is more detrimental to your health than smoking. Because when you sit long periods of time, the blood gets stagnant, you're not breathing deeply, and so what they're recommending is instead of people having a desk, even getting stand-up desk so that you stand up and keep the blood flow going. But it's important to keep moving. So if you do have a sedentary job, every hour at least you want to get up and do some kind of exercises. You know, I'm not going to do them here on stage. But you know, you can just jump. You can put your arms out. You know, keep moving. Well, it impacts our mind. So this is a prescription for mental strength. Voluntary exercise will increase levels of brain-derived neurotropic factors and other growth factors. So these factors that are stimulated from exercise, they're things that cause the brain to flourish and to make new connections and to have stronger activity. It stimulates neurogenesis. It causes new brain cells to form. It increases resistance to brain insult. So if you breathe something you shouldn't breathe, or if someone hits you in the head because they don't like what you said, or anything like that, your brain can respond quicker. 
and re- improve and heal faster. It improves learning and mental performance. Now, I told you I wasn't going to have a lot because I want to save time for question and answers. But I just want to tell you a brief little bit about how I got interested in health. Basically, growing up, our family was very outdoorsy. My parents both were into exercise. So that wasn't a problem. But, you know, I was born in the 1950s, and the standard American diet wasn't too bad, and my mom home-cooked all our meals, so we didn't have a lot of junk, but we had a dessert at least every day. You know, my mom made homemade cookies. She made great chocolate chip cookies and peanut butter cookies, and as soon as I was old enough to cook, actually she started me cooking at the age of two. But, you know, I was making my own cookies, and I knew how to put a dessert together in about 10 minutes. I could dump in some margarine and some flour and some sugar and some butterscotch flavoring and boil that on the stove, and in a matter of minutes, I had some butterscotch brownies because it's nice to have dessert after a meal. Overall, we were fairly healthy, though, because we had a very simple diet, and we weren't wealthy, and so we didn't have a lot, you know? We probably usually left feeling a little bit hungry. We had enough, but we were hungry. But we worked. We were always out exercising. You know, we were walking, we were hiking, we were cycling. So it wasn't too bad. And as I got into school, school came fairly easy for me. And it was about sixth grade, seventh grade, that I got the bug for getting A's. And I could just look at a textbook, and I could almost memorize it. And so when I had to come to a, do a test, I could see the page with the answer. You know, so I, I could just fly through school. So I graduated from school. Now, I'm going to tell you, right about, let's see, it was between 8th grade and ninth grade, we joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And we made changes in our diet. We quit eating unclean meat. And in its place, we put cheese. There were seven of us in the family, but I can remember Mom buying a a block of cheese this long and about that big. We had huge blocks of cheese, and cheese went in everything. And I liked it better than meat. In two years of being on that new diet, my mental function and my physical function went down. And it's particularly harmful for women when you have hormones going because those, that cheese that's loaded with estrogens and hormones, and even back then when it's not as bad as today, they impact your body and they impact your brain and especially your emotions. And so there were only two females in the family And here's my mom being affected by it, and here's me being affected by it. I will tell you, I was mopey. And I used to be really good at um, gymnastics, and I could do the uneven bars, you know, and the parallel bars. But after two years of being on that diet, I couldn't put my hips over my head. I lost my coordination. And I felt like waves were rolling over me. I would just, I'd be going down the road, And it's like, I just felt like 
the ocean was flowing over me. I didn't know what was going on. Well, the sad part of the story is within about three years of being an Adventist, I left the church. And I won't go into all that story, but when I walked away from God and I went into the world, I adopted the world's plan. And I ate the world's way. I went back worse than I ever ate growing up. And I ate whatever, whenever, and I put other things in my body because I didn't care. I was mad. I was mad at Christians that said they were Christians, and I said to myself, if that's the way Christians are, I don't want to go to heaven. Well, guess who paid the price? I did. I was out there in the world in that shape going downhill for six years. And the Lord kept trying to bring me back, and I would just brace myself and resist until finally God got my attention. And my life had become so broken, and I became so moody and so emotional, I couldn't even stand myself. And one day, the Lord just got a hold of me, and I know it was the Holy Spirit. I didn't know it then, but I was sitting in my house, and before my mind was my life. And every year, I saw that I was spiraling down. And I felt I, this impression, where are you going to be next year? And I was horrified because I was just going downhill. And I started crying. And it's like, Lord, I don't want to go there. And I, re, I just cried. And then I heard this impression. I remembered a Bible scripture. I will never leave you. And it's like, God, you still would take me back? You will take me back? And so I said right then, I want God. It's not about church. I believe in church. I believe in God's people. But it was a choice to follow God. And so I made my life, I gave my life back to the Lord, and I found someone that taught me about health that I'm teaching you today. And I went on a seven-day cleanse. She invited me up to her house. And so I went on this cleanse, and all we ate was wheatgrass and barley grass and beet tablets and carrot tablets. And I was starving. And we took bentonite clay to help pull out toxins. And we did psyllium husk. You know, it was a total new experience to me. I took a week off of work, and I didn't tell anyone where I was going because I didn't want them to tell me that I was a quack. You know, I didn't want any negative thing. I will tell you, on the fourth day when I woke up, I felt like a new person. I felt like someone washed my windows, and I felt like my brain was firing on all spark plugs. I was a new person. And I went back to work. I worked in a dental office, and the doc dentist looked at me, and he said, where did you go? You look like a different person. And I said, I am. I had recommitted my life to the Lord. I asked forgiveness for the things that I did that destroyed my life. And I was a new person. And I wanted to teach the world about this new way. And ever since then, I've been studying health. And it's my desire to share the good health that God has given me and to keep finding better and better ways. So that's why I share it with you and why I'm so excited about it, because it changes your mind and that's where I learned. It's like, oh, it's not just that I feel physically better. I woke up and I was happy because I was happy. Yeah. 
And when I went back to the dental office, oh, like three, three months down the road, I was back doing something in one of the back offices, and I heard the office girls talking, and they were saying, she's still happy. She's still happy. Because I had become so moody, nobody wanted to be around me. So now I know that when I break one of God's laws and my mental gets a little bit off, it's like, okay, what did I do? What did I eat? What am I lacking? I need exercise. I need more sleep. You know, whatever it is. But God's plans work. Now, we're going to have time for question and answers. But before we go into question and answers, I want to give you a living demonstration of the difference of how brains work on God's plan and on the world's plan. And I'm going to ask Robert to come up and help me. Now, we've been talking tonight about the influence of lifestyle on the brain. And we've seen that the world's way changes the brain, right? And we saw that people are that are on animal products and high fat and refined food, they're a little bit more anxious, they're aggressive, they're moodier. And so this person, it's, it's a red balloon. This is a person on the world's diet. They're red because they're a hothead. And we saw in some of the studies tonight, they're not as happy. Now, we've got a... a a blue balloon over here, and this represents someone that's on God's plan. They're the cool-headed ones. Okay? Now, whether you're on God's plan or whether you're on the world's plan, does trials come to everyone in life? Yes. Is there a reason that God brings us trials and allows them? Is it because he doesn't love us? No. There's many reasons he allows trials to come to us. The biggest reason is because in trial is when we learn our lack of holding on to God and the defects in our character. But God also allows trials to come to us because we're a witness to other people of what God's plan will do. When the Holy Spirit is in us, we're not to act like the world. So the Bible tells us that trials, they're called the fiery affliction, right? So I have a match here, and we're going to show you what happens to the life that follows the world's plan. You want me to hold? You got them both? You're a good helper. Now, everyone knows what happens to a balloon when they come under something sharp. You step on them. They break easy, don't they? And what happens when you put fire under them? So... Here's George over here, and he had his Egg McMuffin and his sausage for breakfast and probably a cup of coffee, and he gets to work, and his boss, his boss tells him, you're fired. And what does he do? He explodes. His life is over. Now, this is Georgine. And she's been learning about God's ways. And the trials haven't come, kept, stopped coming from her. But as she faces life's trial, no matter how close they get, the fire even touches it. 
Well, she's a cool head. You can put her, put her away. I'll tell you why. Well, give it a shake. Shake, rattle, and roll. There's water. So why does the balloon not break when it has water in it? It's a fireproof balloon. Now, I don't want to misquote this, so I want to read to you why the water prevents it from breaking. The flame heats the rubber of both balloons just the same. So I could touch the blue balloon with the flame, and it doesn't break. So it even got hotter. The rubber of the balloon without water becomes so hot, it becomes too weak to resist the pressure of the air inside the balloon. So the heat was too much. It's heating the air in the balloon. It's not just the fragility of the latex. It's the pressure from inside. So it weakens it, and it pops it. Now, how does the balloon with the water resist breaking in the flame? When the water inside the balloon is placed in the flame, the water absorbs most of the heat from the flame. What is the water? What does it represent? The water represents the Holy Spirit. And when we invite God into our life, he fills us with his presence. And he gives us his presence in terms of the Holy Spirit. And so the trials of life don't come. In fact, he might even allow them to get greater. But Jesus has gone before us, and he has absorbed the strength of the heat. His feet have pushed down the thorns so that even though our path is rough, he takes the blunt of it. And so it's not just a mystical, magical thing he does. He gives us his peace and his presence, but he says, here's a lifestyle plan. And science has proved that his plan brings calmness that you wouldn't have otherwise. So it is our privilege every day to ask for the Holy Spirit to come in and to help us to withstand and not become a hothead, but to be able to go through the fire and not be burnt. We were curious the other day uh, when you mentioned two meals. Uh, does that equate to children as well, growing? Yes, even growing children. Now, when they're, um, you know, up to about the age of um, probably two years old, you know, the, the three-meal-a-day plan is better. But that's, a, that's an excellent question overall, because even if, as an adult, you do not adopt the two-meal-a-day plan. What you want to do is have your heaviest meal for breakfast. You don't put fuel in your car after you get to your destination. So the first thing in the morning, you know, you have the, the work throughout the day. Your body has to, have to, has to function. And so you want your best supportive meal in the morning. 
And then lunch, you're about midway through, so that doesn't have to be quite as heavy, but it still needs to be substantial. If you eat a third meal, it should be light and easy to digest. Our bodies work with the circadian rhythm of the sun. So at about 3 o'clock, and this doesn't count for daylight savings time, but about 3 o'clock as the sun is going down, the brain actually can tell what time it is because of the, the angle of the sun, and it hits the retina, and that sends a message to the pineal gland. And the pineal gland then it takes and converts the serotonin into melatonin. And what it's doing is starts shutting down the body, getting ready to go to rest. And you do not have the digestive enzymes, the hydrochloric acid, the proteases, the, the amylase and the saliva, and the bile and the pancreas. Everything's going to rest because you're not, you're not made to be awake at night. So things start shutting down. So if you put something heavy into the body in the evening, like let's say particularly after 5, 6 o'clock at the latest, your, your digestion really can't handle it. So the easiest food to digest is fruit, it, even if it has the fiber in it. So you can digest an apple in about two hours. Grains are not as hard, as hard as the other foods, but they are harder than your fruit. But you could eat a little bit of grain. You just, you need to make sure, like if you, you're eating bread and you're putting margarine or butter and even almond butter, or, you know, some heavy fats on it, that's going to slow down your digestion. Fats take the longest. Now what about vegetables? A lot of people say, well, I'm going to have a salad. Because we think about salads as being light. You know, and there's not a lot of calories in them. But the fiber that's in vegetables are much harder for the body to break down. So they take longer to pass out of the stomach and into the, the intestinal tract. So the two foods that are the best to eat in, for a third meal would be fruit and grain, either or. Okay? And so just eat, make it light. Now, prob problems for people that have, like, food addiction, um, the main thing is once you start eating, you want to just keep eating. And it's very hard to stop. So I found, always found it hard to eat a light third meal. So I would, I, I just did better when I broke, cut it out. So anyway, those are the principles. Five hours between meals, five to six hours, and you want to go to bed on an empty stomach. And people that have tried this plan with, sub, with enough calories and enough nutrients, even if they're doing hard labor on two meals a day, they can sustain themselves through the day. For the grains, do you have to soak them? And for how long and why? That's a good question. She's asking how long, you know, to soak the grains or and how long to cook them. Any seed, any food that is a seed, you need to soak. Now, I'm not in that good of a habit. It, it takes a lot of planning, but you have your nuts and your seeds, but there's other seeds that we eat. You, know, you realize grain is a seed? Because if you take that 
kernel of grain and you put it in the ground, it's going to grow. So it's a seed, it's just not high in fat like our nuts and seeds that we think about. And then you have your beans. Those are seeds. There's genes that are in enzymes that are in these seeds that prevent them from sprouting when they're sitting on your counter, right? So what you, when you take and soak these, your grain and your seeds and your beans, what you're doing is washing away that it's an anti-trypsin um, factor. And it washes that out and allows the plant to release its nutrients. And so it's the sprouting process. So you're not going to get the full benefit out of these foods if you don't pre-soak them. Now, I'm not the expert on soaking grains. It's fairly easy to soak your seeds, your nuts, and your beans. You know, just soak them for about 8 to 12 hours. I like to use clean water. Just fill them up. And your beans, like if you put about this much in a, a bowl or a pot, you want to cover them at least double or even triple because they swell up and absorb the, the water. Pour it off in the morning, give them a rinse, and then you can go ahead and cook them. Your beans and even your grains need to be slow cooked. You want to cook your legumes for at least, I would say, six to eight hours. Some of my beans I like to cook in a pressure cooker, like garbanzos. They might not be the healthiest that way because there's so much heat on them, but I try to put them under low cook, and it tends to make them nice and soft. Now your grains, I'm not proficient yet at soaking grains because it's hard to soak your grains. You can even soak your flowers, but it changes it. It makes it difficult to cook with. So I haven't made a big practice of doing that. That's a whole different style of cooking. But let me tell you, even if you don't cook them, what you need to do is cook them sufficiently long. There have been studies that have been done that grains that are fast cooked, like let's take rice. If you cook rice in 30 to 40 minutes, you know, you put them under a low simmer, it'll soak up all the water and they'll be ready to eat in about 40 minutes at the most. And if you have one of those rice cookers, they, scientists have taken the, the cooked rice and they have looked, put it into a broth and they've looked at it under the microscope. And what they found is that there's still um, starch par particles that the body cannot break down. They're very, very tiny, but it's critical when you take them into the bloodstream because these undigested starch particles go through the body, and when you particularly get up into the brain, into the frontal lobe, the little capillaries are so small that red blood cells have to fold in half to slip through. But the starch particles are bigger than a folded-in-half red blood cell, and what it does is it clogs the artery. They call them... Um, like a micro, uh, a micro stroke. You don't notice it because it's so small. But over a period of a lifetime, as you start getting up into your 50s and your 60s and 70s, these constant micro um, strokes can cause a problem where it's, it's destroying brain tissue. So it's adding to the problem of dementia. 
Um, Dr. Agatha Thrash at Yuji Pines years ago did a study. She's a pathologist, and her thing is looking under microscope. So they took a number of grains, and they cooked them for different periods of time, like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. So at different increments, they would take these varying grains, and she would look at it under the microscope. And she determined from that how long you need to cook each grain. Now, I don't remember it all, but I, I remember one that really shocked me. Quick oats, quick cooked oats, they had to be cooked for 40 minutes before those, that starch was broken down enough that it could be totally digested. Quick oats. So you get into your regular cooked oats, those need to be cooked about an hour. What I found is the easiest way to cook rolled oats is in the oven, because then you can put them at a lower temperature and cook them for a nice hour to two hours even. But when you start looking at your grains, like rice and millet, these things that you make cereal out of, you're going to want them to be cooked two to three hours. And it's very difficult on a particularly a, a flame, a, a gas flame, because you can't turn it down enough. So if you have an electric stove, it's easier to turn it down to the lowest setting. What I do is bring the water to a, a, a boil, and you can put your salt in it for grains. You don't want to do that for beans. And then pour the grain in and turn it down as low as possible. Stir it once, and then just turn it down. If that doesn't work to be able to cook it two hours on the stove, the next th best thing that I have found is putting it in, in a crock pot. And I do the very same thing. I bring my water to a boil. I put my grain in the crock pot, pour the boiling water over it, put it on low. Well, it depends on your crock pot because every um, gauge is different. So either low or high, and it will cook nicely in about two hours. Now, what about your things like bread? Because we don't cook bread that long. You know, maybe 30, 40, 45 minutes at most, um, 50 minutes. The benefit of bread, the browning that happens on the outside, that helps break down those starch particles. But the inside is not going to get that full benefit. The most healthy bread to eat is when it's been, I'm going to say it in the English way, swybacked. You take and you take your bread and you put it in the oven and dry it thoroughly. That breaks down the starches so that you can thoroughly digest it. We'll do a cooking class sometime, but I make gems. I take my flour and I make it out of, I'm, I'm, I do pretty much gluten-free. And so I'll blend my grain in, in the Vitamix and make a flour, and then I'll make a nut milk, and you can put whatever flavors you want. I can put apples in it, I can put, I like anise, so I'll put anise in it, or I throw raisins in it if I want a little bit sweeter. And I make them just like, they look like cookies. And those will bake in about 50 minutes, and they're nice and brown, they're crunchy on the outside, and the inside's thoroughly cooked. So there's ways to get around it. But yes, you want to thoroughly cook your grains. We undercook our grains, and I, I believe that has a big impact on our, on our brains.
Okay, my question is that, like, I'm constantly feeling hungry, constantly. Even when I eat, like, a big meal, within, like, minutes, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm gaining weight, so, like, the food's not just going through me. But I'm always feeling hungry. Is it possible that that could be, like, some kind of a parasite from eating, you know, too much animal product? If you've taken in animal products, most likely you have parasites. So that could be a problem. How do you get rid of them? Um, there are different things that you can take. Clothes, you, don't, you shouldn't use clothes in general because it's a ner nerve irritant and it irritates the lining of the stomach, but they'll irritate a parasite. You can take oregano oil, you can take black walnut, pumpkin seed, so there's a combination of things that you can take that will get rid of the parasites. But more than the parasites, what probably has happened is when we take in a lot of these substances that we're getting in today's food, fructose is one of them, and excitotoxins is another. So when you take in aspartame or you take in MSG or any form of that, any form of glutamic acid, what it does is disrupt the hormones that make you feel hungry and the hormones that make you feel satisfied. Ghrelin is a hormone that's mostly found in the stomach. And as the stomach is emptying and shrinking, it stimulates these cells to produce ghrelin. And ghrelin then is, um, goes out into the bloodstream and goes to the hypothalamus. That's your hunger center. And it picks up that message saying, I'm hungry. And so you eat. And as the stomach stretches out from putting in the meal and food starts going into the bloodstream, the fat cells get the idea. It's like, oh, we've just taken in food. And it, they release a chemical called leptin. And that leptin then goes to the brain and tells the hypothalamus, say, okay, we ate, shut down. And you get the signal that you're not hungry. But what's happening with some of these chemicals, and particularly fructose, what it does initially is produce an abundance of leptin. You know, because you take in high concentrated foods and the brain says, oh, okay, let's shut down. But when it's too much, you get a similar response like when you take in too much um, fatty foods or too much sugar and you get insulin resistance. It's the same thing, you get leptin resistance. And so the brain starts numbing down to the message that you're not hungry. And it's overridden and you're constantly feeling hungry. So that's one of the major things that's going on in the world today. It's why they're putting these chemicals in food because in the long run, it makes you, you just feel like you need to keep eating. So it's great for the food industry. Now there's a third, another important thing that happens. If you are taking in empty calories and not filling this vehicle with the nutrients that is needed for survival and for health, you're going to constantly crave food because the brain is saying, I'm needing nutrients, I'm needing nutrients. So when you have animal food, you're not getting in the, the proper nutrients that you need. When you're taking in refined foods like sugars and white and refined grains, it 
puts a taxation on the body to break down white sugar or any sugar because they're refined and they do not come with the nutrients that you get in an apple or a raspberry or, you know, the food, the way God packaged it. So you take in sugar, and even those sugars come from, let's just say, sucrose, and it's come from sugar cane. Well, it's been extracted out, and the vitamins and minerals needed to put glucose into energy do not come with the package. So it gets into the cells, and this is complicated chemistry, but I think you can get it. The mitochondria in every cell is what takes the glucose and converts it into energy. It's called ATP. It's called the Krebs cycle. And if you go to school and you take chemistry, you have to memorize the Krebs cycle. Well, in this Krebs cycle, it takes a molecule of glucose and it keeps putting it through different chemical reactions, breaking it down until you finally get 36 molecules of energy. But these chemical reactions require calcium. They require B vitamins. They require magnesium and potassium. And this white sugar comes into your body, but it doesn't come with the calcium, and it doesn't come with the B vitamins. So where's it going to get it? It takes it from your bone. Okay, there's plenty of calcium in your bone, so it just goes to the bank and says, okay, I need some calcium because we got to make this energy. And it says, I need some B vitamins. Well, your nerve tissue is rich with B vitamins. So it just goes to your nervous system and it borrows a little bit of your B vitamins. That's why kids and people get a little bit more cranky when they take sugar in because their nervous system has been robbed. And so you're, you're in this detriment. It's like you constantly go to your bank and you're withdrawing, but you got to pay bills. And so the brain is saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. And we're not feeding ourselves. And a sugar craving is usually the need for protein. Good protein. The body cannot utilize animal protein very effectively. What it's wanting is the protein the way God made it. And so it's looking for this solid nutrients. The best source of protein, whether it's animal or plant, the best source are green leafy, leafy vegetables. They will give you a satisfaction because not only is it a very usable protein, but it's loaded with all these other nutrients. So when you start putting the nutrients in that you need, remember that we have the basic laws of life? When you're putting in the right nutrients, the body's satisfied. So when I was changing my diet, and I had this struggle, I was hungry, and I was used to eating a lot, and especially if I was trying to do two meals a day, but I would find that I would get kind of shaky, you know, and you get that feeling like I got to eat or I'm going to die. Well, one day I was talking to my mother about it. And I asked her, I says, Mom, do you ever get that feeling anymore? Because we both suffered from not true hypoglycemia, but it's what's called the hypoglycemic syndrome. It's where your blood sugar drops. And when it's dropping, even if it doesn't drop below normal, 
the brain gets panicked because it has to have glucose to function. And so it sends a message to the body, feed me now. And my mom said, no, never. Why do you? And I said, yeah, I still get them. I, but I don't know why, because I do all the laws of health and I went through them. And she goes, you don't eat as many greens as I do. And it's true. She would eat this big salad and she would have a parsley drink every day. And if we went out hiking or cycling or whatever activity, she would make that parsley drink and pack it with her. And so I said, okay, she's right. First time in my life, I said, my mom's right. <laughs> you know, I wasn't arguing with her. I went home and I said, okay, I'm going to try it. And we have a store called Trader Joe's. And they have wonderful greens. They had organic arugula. Have you ever had arugula? It's the highest source of calcium per calorie that you can get. 1,300 milligrams of calcium per 100 calories. Of course, you have to eat about two bags of it to get that much. But So I got arugula, and I got spinach, and I got corn tortillas, and this is before I knew about GMOs. And I would take my corn tortillas, and I'd flame them over the fire. I had a propane stove or a natural gas. And then I would take avocado, spread it on it. That's a great replacement for margarine. And then I took my greens and I chopped them up and I make sunflower seed dressing. I blend some sunflower seeds, lemon juice, water, and salt, and it makes this nice, beautiful, creamy dressing. And I mix that on my salad and I put it in my corn tortilla and I have my green tacos. And I would eat four of those for breakfast. And I would have a serving of beans with it. I will tell you, I could go eight hours without getting that shaky feeling. And I had strength. And my little girl, she would eat the same, and she had the same strength to keep going. So it might be a challenge for some people, but what worked for me, I've seen work for others, especially if you have blood sugar issues. If you have your good greens and beans for breakfast, you will be satisfied on two meals a day. Because then if you eat four, five to six hours later and you have a nice meal, and a lot of times I eat my beans and greens for breakfast, and I still do that today. And then for lunch, I have a simple meal of some grains and some fruit. I am never hungry in the evening. I can go with just drinking water, and then I like that nice, empty feeling. But it's having that substantial food. And now it might take time to fill up your nutrient bank, so give yourself some time. But I will tell you, the more you put those greens in, the, the more satisfied you're going to feel, and you're going to heal that system of leptin and ghrelin. Okay. If I mix uh, many kinds of fruits and put them in the blender. Does it make any difference if I eat it fresh or as juice? And I make a big amount and then put some in the freezer and keep some in the fridge. Okay, so she's wanting to make a fruit smoothie. Well, that's not too bad, you know, but let me tell you a little bit about digestion. You know, there's good, better, and best. So that's not bad. And, you know, you're mixing that up. The problem is that when you make it into a smoothie, 
how easy does it go down? It goes down really easy, doesn't it? How much time does it spend in your mouth? It, it, hardly at all, right? So that's the biggest problem with it. Digestion begins in the mouth. In fact, researchers have found that people with dementia tend to have soft diets. And they have found that something about more coarse meals that you have to chew, it has some effect on the neurochemistry, on the serotonin, and some of these other neurotransmitters that the brain is putting out. So this action of chewing isn't just to do the work of a blender. You want that to happen. But there's other things going on. So when you chew, saliva needs to be mixed thoroughly with your food. And that saliva then helps start breaking down, particularly the carbohydrates. But if you do not chew thoroughly, and even though your blender has done a good job and you put it in your stomach, you're bypassing the main carbohydrate digestion. So it's going to impact your digestion carbohydrate-wise. Now you're also going to mechanically break the fibers in a way that you do not break down if you chew. And so the fibers help slow down the release of nutrients into the bloodstream, particularly your sugars. And so because it's been blended like that, you get this rush of sugar into the bloodstream. So it's not as good. Now, what I'd recommend that you do, one, you don't want to eat it real cold. You know, some of these smoothie recipes put ice in it. Ice shuts down the stomach. And the body has to warm the meal up before it can start working on it. It literally paralyzes the stomach. So if you make a smoothie, you don't want it cold. And if you eat it cold, you want to hold it in your mouth long enough to warm it up. The same thing is true about green smoothies. You need to chew it to get the full benefit. Let me tell you a story. I've been telling this story for probably 20 years. A woman that worked at the health center that I went to work at years later told me this story, but she gave me no reference. She had read a story about a couple of prisoners of war from World War II. When the war ended and they were going and releasing the prisoners, they came to this certain camp and they found two men that were fairer and fatter of flesh. Now they weren't fat by any means and they weren't even as fat as I am, but they weren't emaciated. And they went to them, and the, guess what they asked them? Where did you get more food? They had to have had more food from somewhere because they weren't skin and bones like the rest of the prisoners. And they said, we didn't have any extra food. And they said, well, how come you don't look so emaciated? And they said, because we chewed our one piece of bread for two hours. The longer food remains in the mouth, the more satisfied you are, 
because it releases these hormones that help you to benefit what you're getting. While the food is in the mouth being chewed up, your taste buds aren't there just for your pleasure. Those are chemical messengers. And when the tongue detects that you're eating something sweet, that you're eating something fatty, that you're eating something with protein, the tongue is picking up the chemistry of what you're eating. It sends the message to the brain, which sends messages to your liver, to your pancreas, to your intestines, and to your stomach. Get ready, here comes sugar, here comes fat. And if you just gulp your food down, the body doesn't produce as well as having the, the heads up. Isn't it incredible how finely tuned we are? And then because they were chewing it, for so long, it was thoroughly broken down. And so the body could extract maximum nutrition out of it. Now, I had no resource for that. I think she might have read it in Reader's Digest or something. So it's like a good story. But by principle, it fits the physiology of how digestion works. Well, I would tell the story and I would say, now I don't have any science or any proof of this story. But I, the principle is there. Well, a few years ago, I was in Washington State giving the health lectures, and I told the story. There happened to be a family from Japan. They're living here in the United States. They hadn't even had their green card approved yet. And they came up to me afterwards and said, Dr. Diane, we know of that experience. We had friends and family that were arrested and put in prison over in, I believe it was China. And they were given one little white rice ball for one meal. That's all they had to eat. And they would take that rice ball and take one kernel of corn, um, rice at a time and chew it and chew it and chew it. By the time a half hour was passed, they had only eaten half of their rice ball and then they would share it with the other prisoners. And they maintained their weight and their vitality better than any of the other prisoners. So the most important part of digestion is right here. I said overeating was one of my biggest problems, but along with overeating is gulping your food. And I have to work at taking small bites and chewing thoroughly. I heard a family that said that what they did to start to try to slow down their eating was they took chopsticks. Now, if you're raised with eating with chopsticks, no problem. I've seen them shovel it in with chopsticks. But if you're like me and you have no dexterity with chopsticks, it's an excellent way to slow down eating. But just consciously think about how long food remains in your mouth. So, so many people I know have thyroid issues and have to take Synthroid or are, you know, their thyroid's out of whack. And why is that and how can you get best get it back into balance? That is a huge question. And I'll just give a short answer because there's information out there that you can look at. But thyroid problems are epidemic. They're epidemic. Almost 
I would say it's at the top of the list. Your blood goes through the thyroid every 15 seconds. The thyroid is what fine-tunes your metabolism. Every part of your system depends on that thyroid working. And so when you're taking toxins in of any form, but we're getting hormones from animals and animal products, that's impacting our thyroid. We have a lack of iodine in our food, and it is essential that we have iodine to make good thyroid hormone. But another big problem is that we are having poor digestion. We have inflamed intestinal tracts. And food that is normally healthy and good is becoming toxic to us. We're not able to break it down. It's becoming like foreign substances. The gluten question is at the top of the list. And even mainstream medicine is concerned about it. I run into people all the time, and they're changing their And I come across more and more people telling me, well, I quit, I'm on a gluten-free diet. And I said, really? Who told you that? My doctor. My doctor. It's in mainstream medicine, this concern. Here's what I know about it, and from what I see, I'm convinced it's a problem. Modern wheat has been hybridized over the last 50 years. The best bread comes from high protein. The higher the protein, the nicer the bread is. And so to make nice wheat and to be in competition, they're hybridizing it. They put in wild goat grass. They put in things that our bodies don't break down so well. And all of this hybridization has created protein structures that are foreign to our body. It's similar to dairy. Dairy has protein that we can't break down, and it becomes an an antigen, a foreign substance, and our body attacks it. Well, it's happening with wheat, and there's people who are more sensitive than others. And anything you can't break down is a promoter for inflammation. Now, when the intestinal tract gets inflamed, the junctions in the in that intestinal tract swell up and food particles before they're thoroughly digested leak into the bloodstream. And then you're getting um, reactions and tissue damage throughout your body. But the biggest damage is in the intestinal tract. So then no matter what you're eating, you're not breaking it down thoroughly. And anything you can't break down that you become allergic to impacts your adrenals. And when your adrenals are impacted, there's a close relationship between the adrenals and the thyroid. And so I see that allergy foods are one of the number one problems for breaking down the thyroid. So at the top of the list, what I would say with the epidemic today is this undigestible gluten. You can get the older forms of wheat, kamut and spelt, and they're bringing out some others. I don't even remember the names of them, like ancorn or something like that. So 
they're they're becoming popular in in almost every store you've got gluten free gluten free I don't like most of the gluten-free products, you know, like the breads and things, because they make it out of things that aren't so healthy either. So that's a big part. But overall, it's, it's things that we're taking in, whether they're heavy metals, the chemicals, and that type of the things that we're getting put into the food. So the purer the diet, I think the, the thyroid will clear up. But once the thyroid has been irradiated, because that's what happens to a lot of people when they have hyperthyroid, they will have irradiation um, to destroy the um, thyroid tissue. You are obligated to be on um, thyroid hormone. So if that hasn't happened, it is possible to bring the thyroid back if you follow a good program and do some other things. There's some other things. There's and iodine supplementation is necessary. I want to mention one other thing. The irradiation that we're getting through the air, that's also suppressing our, our thyroid. But I don't believe it's the biggest problem. Okay? Thank you. Um, we do an awful lot of cashews for just about everything. Now, is there any... Cashews? Cashews. Now, is, is there any particular way to prepare a cashew before you use them? Or? You, you want to clean them. So you can bring them to a boil, simmer them for at least five minutes, rinse them off, and then you're safer. Okay? So they're just not, you know, they're not at the top of the list of the most healthy nuts. Almonds are, are the top of the, the healthy nuts. In my country, in the United States, all almonds, whether they're organic or not, need to be irradiated. So it's hard to get around that. And they're pricey today, too. So I tend to go mostly to seeds. You know, they have more nutrition, and um, they're less expensive. But the cashews, if you use them. And then um, if you want them in a crunchier form, you know, because once you boil them, and even if you soak any of your nuts and seeds, they tend to get soggy. So you can put them in a dehydrator or put them in an oven at real low temperature and crisp them back up. But you don't want to overcook them. Nuts are healthier when they're not roasted so much. Okay? If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.com. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.